I'm Aaron Rothstein of the Ethics and Public Policy Center's Bioethics and American Democracy Program. Welcome to Searching for Medicine Soul. Today's guest is Dr. Norman Deutsch. He is a psychiatrist, psychoanalyst, and the New York Times bestselling author of The Brain's Way of Healing and The Brain That Changed Itself, which was chosen by the Dana Foundation from over 30,000 titles as the best general book on the brain. It has sold over a million copies around the world. His work appears in 31 languages. For 30 years, he was on the research faculty of the Center for Psychoanalytic Training and Research at Columbia University's Department of Psychiatry in New York City, and on the faculty of the University of Toronto's Department of Psychiatry. He lives in Toronto. His website is normandeutsch.com. Norman, thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. I'd like to start off discussing your book from a few years ago. And in fact, I've given this book to some of my patients to to help kind of inspire them to think a little bit differently about their own recovery. And that book is The the Brain's Way of Healing. One of your core theses, it seems to me, is that the brain and mental activity cannot be understood in isolation from the body. That the mind-body connection is not just a path towards disease, but a path towards health. I think our listeners might uh, interpret that in many different ways. So maybe you can explain what you mean by this and give a couple of examples from your own research and writing. Well, I would say that the mind in certain situations can be used for healing and not all, all the time. The, The whole thesis has to be understood against a certain backdrop, which is, you know, beginning with Descartes in the, in the Western world, it was understood that the mind and the body work in different ways. The mind was a, some kind of more ethereal thing that worked by its own laws, the, perhaps the laws of emotion and, or logic and reason. And the body was an extended material thing, and it worked by the, ultimately by the laws of physics as, as we know them. And with that emphasis, one of the things that happened is that we get split in two, and we have experts in the physical body and experts in the mental world. And the problem is, how do they connect? I mean, obviously they connect. But with the, once Descartes became so central, his articulation of what we are, the whole question of how you do something as simple as, you know, you imagine raising your hand and then you raise your hand. If these two domains or modes or processes work by radically different laws, how, how do they connect? And modern medicine has increasingly been focused very much on the body. And of course, we all have minds and we all move our bodies in some way or other with our minds. But when we put on our, our hat as modern scientific clinician, we're far more inclined to explain mental life as nothing but, notice that, those two words, nothing but the epiphenomena or the effects of the material body. Now, it's, it's not as though that's ever been shown, by the way. No one's ever solved the, men, the, the mind-body problem. That's why it's called the mind-body problem. And we've had a tendency to increasingly in 
in dealing thing with things like psychiatry and psychology to get more and more mater- materialist and reductionistic in a materialistic way so that serious treatments and serious diseases are always nothing but a manifestation of some kind of chemical process or electrical process or genetic process physically going awry. This this approach to ourselves, which sees the mental and the subjective as nothing but derivative of the body, again, it's the mainstream understanding in much of science, but it's not as though it's ever really been proven. And in some ways, it's kind of absurd, isn't it? Because so much of our lives are actually driven by intention and thought, and no one has really ever shown exactly where that transduction or change between the mental to the physical or the physical to the mental occurs. We know that you can damage the brain and a man can have very unique and interesting thought problems. He can mistake his wife for a hat. I mean, we know about all these things. They're absolutely fascinating. They are real. They're not to be dispensed with. But this idea that the mental is nothing but derivative of the body It just turns out to be factually inaccurate. We haven't shown that much. And, and, you know, a number of experiments, I mean, there were even some that were done in the late 70s, as early as the late 1700s with animals by Malacharn, where he stimulated some animals and others he did uh, were, were understimulated. And he saw that in a very primitive way, macroscopically, that the size of the brain was different in some of these animals. Now, in recent years, we've just had really hundreds of these experiments showing this microscopically. Uh, you know, the work of Eric Kandel genetically in Aplesia was able to show that when you teach a, an organism like a snail to respond to a Pavlovian experiment, like you give it a, a negative stimulus and it withdraws part of its body, that you can actually see changes happening in the synapses, in the number of synapses that develop. We know now that mental experience can, you know, radically alter the size of or or the functioning of or the effectiveness of certain brain areas. You know, there were studies of, you know, brain scans of London cab drivers famously and the areas that they scan the areas that map spatial spatial coordinates in their brains before their training and then after their exhaustive training, learning the maps of London, a very complicated city, and they see the brain scans are radically changed. So we now have many experiments showing that experience, which has to have a mental component, it's mediated by the mental, is changing brain structure. And some of the most dramatic ones were done by Mike Merzenich. And they show that the body's maps, the way we map, for instance, feeling, like where we feel our fingers, the areas of the brain that process the feeling for the middle finger or the second finger or the third finger and so on, it can all be altered. If you cut off a finger, the map for that finger disappears. If you sew two fingers or tape two fingers together, the map for those two different fingers in the brain merges into one map. So we now know that whatever the mental is, and it's very, very hard to define, 
without using other synonyms for the mental. Whatever that process is that we're all engaged with can sculpt many aspects of the brain. And it turns out that many brain problems are related to problems in brain maps, for instance. You know, brain maps can map the external world in terms of, you know, where, how we are aware of our bodies, sounds, there are visual maps, there are many, many kinds of maps. And so what I wrote about in my first book was how these findings in labs did two things. They led to a group of researchers who were now able to start to manipulate experience to change brain maps and change brain functioning and even change speed of processing and even increase IQ, for instance. And I show all of those kinds of things in my first book. I mean, this is without a doubt that this is happening, that the brain can be trained in a way somewhat akin to the way the body is trained or or movements are trained in athletics or in music. And in a way, it should be no surprise because these are very intensive forms of differentiation that are involved. And by the way, Plato in the Republic has Socrates saying he thinks something like this is happening. He doesn't talk about the brain, but he says you can train the mind very much the way the athletes train. And many ancient practices like meditation or very, very refined forms of movement, things like Tai Chi, etc., and of course, training in music, but any really well-developed discipline was relying on plasticity so that you're not just getting more content. It's not like when you're learning something, you're just getting more words to use. It's more that the speed with which you can access the words and produce the words and relate the words and play with and modify the words, all of those things turn out to be plastic. So the speed of mental processing is plastic, and that correlates. I mean, we can show this by various measures of brain activity. I was just reading about how one woman who had had a brain injury that I write about, the scientists measured the speed with which her brain could send signals to her muscles. And with the intervent, the neuroplastic intervention she underwent to help her improve her cognitive functioning, her balance, her movement, when they tried to see if there was a correlate to the improvement in the movement, they saw that the brain was actually sending more signals to the muscles at a faster rate just with the help of the training. Okay. So look, we've known for the longest time that certain kinds of mental stresses can lead to a deterioration in bodily function. But if you understand how the brain works, you can also use mentally-based experience to improve a lot of functions. And so there's different classes of improvement that are possible. There are certain cases I write about, take something like cerebral palsy, or or where, where where a child has had a stroke very early on, so they don't get to go through the normal movements in life, in part because they're spastic, where if you can relieve that spasticity, they can develop brain maps for movement in that area for the first time. So sometimes you can re-employ what normal development would do and see that the brain plastically responds and develops maps. In other cases, people lose brain areas because of strokes, infarcts, certain kinds of brain damage where there's some 
dead brain tissue. And we know from, from scans that other parts of the brain can actually take over. This was just not thought possible. And this has been shown on scans. There are other conditions where the brain is functionally impaired because it's firing in a very improper way, almost akin to a, an arrhythmia from a heart problem. And we can use mental experience to improve its function very quickly. So these are the kinds of windows. It's, this isn't magic. It, it's, people talk about it as miraculous in part because we inherited this doctrine of the unchanging brain, which basically assumed that when brain cells die, there's nothing that could be done. And that turns out to be incorrect, which doesn't mean that anything can be done, but much more can be done than we thought. Interesting. And this seems to tie, you, you, you mentioned this in your answer, it seems to tie very deeply to the idea of neuroplasticity. The brain is capable of changing the connections in its cells in both healthy and injured brains. Why is neuroplasticity or how is neuroplasticity so important to human beings in both health and neurological disease? And is this sort of the same thing that we were just talking about in terms of the the mind-body connection? Yeah. I mean, basically, yes. So, you know, the definition of neuroplasticity that I give, and I'll explain why I'm somewhat proprietary about this, is because other people don't use this definition, and I think they're incorrect. It's that property of the brain that allows it to change its structure and its function in response to mental experience and activity. Now, the reason I say the reason I say it that way is because some people who just work in labs, who are not clinicians, know that they can, you know, recreate sort of nervous activity in a petri dish, and in give certain kinds of electrical stimulation or radiation or chemicals, and they can change the structure and even function of these cells, usually towards deterioration just by a physical intervention. But I emphasize, no, the definition of neuroplasticity is it's in response to mental experience. What's going on in those lab experiments where there is no mental involved except the mental of the experimenter is a total abstraction from the natural condition in which plasticity evolved. Plasticity evolved to allow our experiences to change ideally optimize our nervous and brain responses to what was changing. It evolved, we evolved a changing brain so that we would be adapted to a changing world is the way I put it. That's the great very early innovation of the nervous system that it is so exquisitely sensitive in a very high-speed way to what's going on and to experience. And you can't really understand neuroplasticity if you make experience irrelevant. And you can't understand ourselves and our strengths and our limitations if you take that mediation of change via mental experience out of it. Every now and then I was asked if well, can you do neuroplastic change in, in, in your sleep and so on and so forth? And I mean, in a non-serious way, you know, perhaps you can. I mean, if you keep redreaming the same dream over and over again, that's in sleep. But then there's the philosophical debate as to whether having a nightmare over and over again is or isn't a conscious experience. And I think that it is a certain kind of conscious experience if you can wake up 
if you if you feel you're experiencing something in the dream, which we do. So I think it's who we are. I think we went through a period of time. You know, historically we've this mind-body divide has had different representations, at least in the West, philosophically, at different times. To some extent, if you read Aristotle, there's a sense, you know, that what we are we have to be understood as whole organisms in some way. And if you read like great thinkers like Kurt Goldstein, who was worked with traumatic brain injury and he wrote a book called The Organism, his emphasis was that, you know, when one part is damaged, everything else reacts. It was a very holistic correction. You know, there, there again, historically within science and within medicine, there's been two tendencies. There's been the one tendency, which has been to be more holistic and often think more in terms of energy, which is very much left out of much of modern medicine, which is chemical and surgical, by the way, and try to say, look, it's very clear that all the parts seem related. I guess you can take out one kidney, but you can't really understand the kidneys functioning without understanding its relationship to the blood vessels and the heart and the you know circulatory system then there's been another side which has been the materialist reductionist side that is not me making a disparaging remark about a school that is a school of medicine that has made really important contributions but it's just one part of the picture that pridefully called itself reductionistic and it began in a really interesting way. If you think of the great triumphs of 19th century medicine in places like Vienna and, and Berlin, so Austria, Austria and Germany, where, where in the mid-19th century, that's where medicine was making most of its breakthroughs. You know, They were the first to systematically do things like pathology. So a person comes in and they're weak. So that's a very general symptom. Those are the physicians who, using stethoscopes and the first microscopes in pathology, learned how to localize where that weakness was coming from. Were they weak because they had a problem in their heart and a, a problem with a heart valve and weak circulation? Did they have a lung problem? Did they have a, a lung tumor or did they, did they have an infection or asthma? And they used their equipment like a stethoscope. You could begin to localize if it was the heart, where in the heart the valve problem was, or where in the lung, which lobe was involved. And then the next thing that they could do with this reductionistic thing is say, well, have the patient spit out um, their sputum and let's look at, in a finer way, what kind of organism is infecting them. And then they, they could get smaller and smaller. So they were reducing things. And it led us to think that, and they made fabulous accomplishments. And when this was applied to neurology, by the way, we tried increasingly to think, well, show me the speech area and show me the emotional area and show me the visual area. And we tried to localize, that's the term, and these people call themselves localizationists, every mental function. And the implications of this was everything was material. Truth resided in finer and finer distinctions of smaller and smaller parts. Great accomplishments were made, but it only takes you so far because, in fact, all the parts are related. So 
Western medicine for the last 150 years has been analytic, meaning to tear things down to small parts. We analyze things. Our lab tests are all about analysis of microscopic things and so on, blood levels. And then the kinds of things that we're, where we make huge mistakes are where everything is related. So in, in my career in medicine, what are the kinds of things that people often said, oh, well, that's just all in their heads. It couldn't be real, like chronic fatigue syndrome early on when Lyme disease happened before it was called Lyme disease. Oh, this person is a malingerer or hysterical or something like that. So it's in the, in the kinds of problems that tend to involve many different, quote, parts of the body that we've often been weak, and we're weakest in treating a lot of chronic diseases, which is why they're still chronic. <laughs> and so there was a radical need for a re-correction of this imbalance between the holistic side, I would say, and the materialist reductionist side. And I want them both to, to succeed, but neither can su succeed but, uh, alone. And one of the things that happened is a lot of those illnesses fell into out of the hands of mainstream medicine and insurance coverage and into the hands of people who did what is called complementary or alternative medicine. And you know, there's been a battle between those two sides. It's incredibly unfortunate because the people, the people who interest me the most are people who know a lot about both sides and can work with them together. And the complementary people have been right about many, many important things. They were onto the problems with the microbiome, like clinically onto it, way before med mainstream medicine paid any attention to it. They've helped a lot of people with traumatic brain injuries that mainstream medicine has been unable to help. And, and, and there, there are many, and they were onto the importance of nutrition. I mean, like I had, I loved my nutrition course in medical school and I did well in it, but it was, I think only eight or 15 hours. And that was much more than most doctors got. Yeah. I, I got zero nutrition hours in medical school. Which is kind of funny for a materialist reductionist model to not think that what you're putting inside your body is important, especially in an age where we're all born a recent study, this is really, really alarming. I mean, it was maybe five years ago, six years ago, showed that the average American, if they sample the placenta on the average birth, that placenta has, in other words, a sign of the mother's toxicity has 200 chemicals that have been banned in it. And they only tested for 400, and there's many more chemicals out there. So we are born pre-polluted and that gives rise to all sorts of problems. And I mean, it's at, at a scientific level, we don't even know what a normal control group would look like because we're all born pre-polluted. And no wonder there are so many childhood developmental disorders and chronic, so chronic diseases in childhood now compared to when I was growing up. Can we maybe tie together, you mentioned energy as this sort of alternative idea beyond the, the chemical and the surgical. Can we tie that maybe to the, the neuroplasticity idea? Well, it's I can tie it, but with very a loose narrative string. And just by telling you how I got interested in it as a healing, as something that might be relevant for healing, it was by accident, like many interesting things. 
after my first book, which only had a few cases in it of people with traumatic brain injury, I was approached by many people from all over the world who'd had traumatic brain injuries. And at the same time, I was approached by many practitioners of various kinds, either from labs or from other traditions, sometimes influenced by the East, sometimes not, sometimes Western, but, and all of whom said that they had things which they thought would help people with traumatic brain injury based on small sample sizes, but following people very closely. And people with traumatic brain injury are frequently, well, it's called, you know, concussion that lasts a period of time is called mild traumatic brain injury. And there's nothing mild about it in most cases. I mean, it's very frequently life destroying. You can't work or you can work for a couple of hours in the day. I mean, it's terrible. And these people have no money. And so I was in this funny situation of trying to match people who were in desperate need of interventions with a plethora of people who were saying, I, I think I can help, plus all the people I had already s- studied for my first book. And I was trying to say, well, how can I possibly match these people up? Because they may have one kick at the can for a, a treatment. And most of these people have been sick for many years. So that's where the brain's way of healing came. What I set out to do, and this is an answer to your question, by the way, was to try to say, okay, we know that the brain is neuroplastic and it's neuroplastic at many levels, but are there stages of plasticity such that some of these interventions are addressing a blocked stage of healing in, uh, in one way, and others of these interventions are addressing another stage? And can I tell where this patient in particular needs help? And out of that emerged what I call the stages of neuroplastic healing. And it's not to be understood chronologically all the time, but these were things that had to be addressed. Now, I got access to many, many different kinds of things that were out there. And I certainly did not set out to write about energy. But as I saw all of these new interventions, what many of them had in common is they were interventions that in some way or other involve manipulating energy. And, you know, we frequently are trained in medical school and the modern model of the brain was kind of like a chemical vat. Of course, we've known since more than well over a hundred years that it produces electrical signaling, but clinically with the exception maybe of epilepsy and deep brain stimulation for Parkinson's, there'd been very little attention paid to that. And some of the labs that I was working with were working with energy in the first book, notably the Bakirita lab, which was actually applying energy to the tongue of all places. And then I was approached by people who were using light energy. And a lot of these things were being shown with brain scans. Now, there was a lot of eye rolling, and there still is a lot of very silly eye rolling when people start talking about energy as a potential intervention. And, you know, you're, for me, it would be funny. It's sort of like I might be speaking with a very skeptical clinician about some of these things who hadn't looked at any of these cases the way I was looking at it or hung out in these labs or with these clinicians. Sometimes I would hang out with people for for eight years watching their patients. And they would say, it's, it's impossible. You know, show me a brain scan. And I just 
find that kind of funny because all of our various kinds of scans are energy-based, right? Like x-rays are energy and MRIs are energy. I mean, they're, they're all based on energy. I can imagine them calling on their cell phone, giving information about how reckless storage is being for talking about energy and healing and the waves are going across, you know, across town to their friends. Look, energy is very, very real. And just because they had not paid attention to it, because when you roll your eyes in front of a new clinical phenomenon, you're not looking at it. You're expressing a kind of primitive emotional reaction to it. But it turned out that that was what was happening. Now, that a lot of them were energy-based. Now, perhaps one of the people who opened my eyes to this the most was Paul Bachirita, who was this who was both a neurologist and rehabilitation physician that I wrote about in The Brain That Changes Itself, the first book, who was doing energy-based interventions at a certain point almost exclusively. So one of the first ones he did is he was working with blind people and he was they were trying to paint pictures on their skin. You know, what he understood was that all of our sense receptors are really data ports, which then traduce, transduce, energy of one form into another form. Well, let, let's take the eyes. You know, there's there's photons that are hitting the retina and that gets transduced into electrical signals that go through the brain and sound waves are transduced by the cochlea and the ear into electrical waves. And even when you're touching the skin, there's an energetic component to that. And if you were to write the letter, your initials AR on your palm, you would understand I was perhaps trying to communicate with you. And so that it's the brain that's involved in the perception of it and the senses in a way are data ports. Now, he actually, and I've made films of this, was able to allow blind people to, to learn to read just by having input. And originally, he thought of doing it on the skin, but then he realized the tongue, because it's moist and, and thin, and it's got something like 15,000 different sort of nerve fibers on it, was a very highly differentiated mode to basically, or data port to talk to the brain. And he was getting people who had never, you know, hadn't read to read, things like that. And then one of the guys in the lab got sick and had a balance problem. And then they said, well, could we use this device instead of if we, it was attached originally to a big TV camera and then a smaller camera and a blind person would walk around and then they would be reading the world on their tongue. And I made a film of one of these guys actually sinking a basket, completely blind, using this device. Then it was used for balance because one of the people had a balance problem and I wrote about that. And so it was very, very clear that the brain is highly, highly adaptive at extracting information. And again, it's working electrically, but the senses are just data ports. So that was one entry. And that had to do actually with, with touch, if you think about it, because it was electrical stimulation. It's like, it feels like little popping champagne bubbles on your tongue. Then I got involved with understanding how light could help traumatic brain injury. And then I go into great detail about how sound modified can help a range of problems, including learning disorders, autistic spectrum disorders, some traumatic brain injuries, ADD of certain kinds, because there's many kinds of ADD and so on. And 
all of these great clinicians or people who worked in labs, I mean, they seem to have certain things in common. I found them to not be disagreeable, but they would not be stopped. They often had studied some philosophy along with science. They were by nature integrative, incredibly curious. And often, for one reason or another, they'd had their own encounters with Eastern medicine too. The language they spoke was of equations and the, everything documented in the brain's way of healing. Everything, I mean, can be written out in an equation. There, there's nothing new age about it. If the definition of new age is some kind of fanciful thing that seems to be a fashion that comes and goes and it's just for flighty people, Consider that, you know, there's what, hundreds of acupuncture points and they haven't changed for 2000 years. There is something real there. And we don't, we haven't yet got a technique to, at this point, measure the meridian, but we can measure outcomes. And so they, they were all very open to, they, they certainly did not have that disparaging approach to Eastern medicine. They often used aspects of it in their lives. And so when they put on their sort of Western lab hat and were thinking about the fact that they're using energy, it wasn't shocking to them, nor is it remotely shocking to me. And so how exactly the energy changes relate to the mental, I don't know. Like within Eastern medicine or Eastern thought, there's a sense that you can focus on a body part and somehow or other it'll change what's happening there energetically. And I think we know you could, we know for a fact, if you let's th make it very simple. If I learn the letter, this has been shown in labs. If I mean, I learn the letter a and I write the letter a, or I hear the letter a, there's a certain brain pattern that'll be activated. And then if I imagine the letter a, the same brain areas and pattern will be activated. So there's that. The other area where I, the relationship between energy and thought is, you know, our our thought patterns and our patterns of neuronal firing can be picked up by doing micro electrode arrays. So these are tiny, tiny little electrodes. They're small enough you could stick one into a cell. And if you think of things like Neuralink, these brain-body interfaces, what they're basically doing is they're getting an array of, let's say, I don't know what the numbers are now. It could be a hundred, it could be a thousand or even more. And they can rest it on the cortex, the outer layer of the brain. And when an animal, say, reaches for a banana pellet in an experiment, they look at the pattern of firing. So that's idea, banana pellet, a particular pattern of fire. And they record these patterns and the animal's then can, by kind of neurofeedback, learn these patterns. And so the question arises, you know, when we are thinking, where exactly in the brain is it going on? And people often talk as though we know exactly that it's going to be in, like your thought of your grandmother is going to be in a particular area. And people have been hunting in neuroscience for that grandmother cell for years and they never find it. And a number of experiments done by Carl Lashley 90 years ago, showed that these ideas or these patterns or these skills, like we, how to weave 
through a labyrinth, if you're a mouse or a rat and swimming in a, an experiment, are widely distributed in the, br- in the brain. And Lashley's conclusion, which I think is the most likely hypothesis, is that they are carried in the patterns of electronic firing. In, so not in the neuron itself, not in the actual s- spike, but in the patterns. And this is relevant for plasticity. Because one of the things Lashley showed was he could teach an animal to do a a trick, and then he could cut out the brain area thought to be related to that. And it could still do the trick, it just was slower. And at a certain point, he could cut out vast amounts of cortical real estate, and the animal could still do it, just not efficiently. Now, why is this important for neuroplasticity? The metaphor I use is, if you ask where are thoughts, think of something dear to your heart, which is music. The way to think about it is the thoughts aren't in the part of the brain. The thoughts are in the musical score. So if there is a musical score, which is the patterns of elect- you know, electrons firing and waves, and other cells, fire, uh, other cells having electrical activities too, maybe not firing spikes, and you're going to do a show, and then something happens and your first violinist isn't there who does the solo, the show can still go on as long as there's a score and the second violinist can play it. Maybe not quite as well, but the show can go on. Now, to make it macabre, let's say the first violinist was killed in a car accident or that brain area was, I mean, irreparably damaged in a stroke so that it's dead and its connections are all dead. Well, when I went to medical school, we would say that person was a hopeless case. But if it's in the score, in the patterns of electrical firing, then if another brain area can be taught, then maybe not. And that's what Edward Taub showed. He did work with with monkeys and then with human beings. And he found that in strokes with very, very intensive training, people might lose, have an an infarct or a lesion, in other words, death to brain tissue in the left motor cortex and couldn't move their right hands. But with very, very, very intensive training in a particular dose, in a particular way that started very, very simply, he could get them moving, not as quite as skillfully as before, but he could. And he's done 500 papers showing this is possible. And then when he scanned them, he found that often areas adjacent to the lesion took over or sometimes weirdly in ways we can't easily explain in the opposite hemisphere in a parallel way and then communicate. So in the right hemisphere and then somehow communicated with the left and sent the signal down. So something thought like or learning like may well be in these patterns of firing. And that's not the typical materialist way of looking at it, or it's a very advanced materialist way. Yeah, not at, I mean, certainly this is not something that we really talk about in med school, and certainly not something that we talk about even in clinical practice very much. You know, it, it, it's interesting you mentioned this device on the tongue. This year, the FDA approved the use of the portable nerve stimulator, or PONS, which you brought, bring up in the book, and that was sort of eight years ago. I, I mean... 
you know, it, it brings these electrical pulses to the tongue, treats patients. It's now proved to treat patients with difficulty walking due to multiple sclerosis, um, which is an autoimmune disease for, for listeners who may not know. <clears throat> and you focus on a patient with multiple sclerosis. Uh, Ron Hussman was a former singer and he essentially loses his ability to sing, but this device significantly improved his symptoms. And it, it really relates back, I think, to this idea of energy. So maybe you can talk about how this device helped him. Because I think in those cases, most probably neurologists would say, well, that's gone. There's not much we can do about it. But for him, things seemed to, when he was using this device, he, he seemed to find his voice. Yeah. So I think the easiest way to explain it is give a very quick overview of the stages of neuroplastic healing because they were involved and then how it affected him, what, what his deficits were and how it affected him. So as I drafted these different stages, I found that the, what I preferred to call the first stage was just general cellular problems. Many people have general cellular problems that ultimately affect their brain functioning. So MS, as you say, is an autoimmune disease. And, you know, there are people like Dr. Terry Wall, who had serious MS, who addressed her MS, which was about to kill her, with a radical dietary intervention. And you could read the Wall diet. But it had many things going for it, but it was certainly organic. It was very, very rich in many of the things that are missing in the American diet in terms of vitamins and minerals. And there are many, many cases in medicine where we find that attending to general cellular health, getting rid of toxins, I mean, lead and mercury are terrible for the brain. And there's, there's so many of those out there. And then there's all these chemicals in the typical American diet. And we know how terrible pesticides are, but there's also many well, well-established vitamin deficiencies and so on and so forth. So I try to address that first. So if Ron had been my patient, I, I really would have said, look, what's triggering the autoimmune disease? The tendency would have been to take a kind of predetermined statement like, well, we don't exactly know. It's a genetic predisposition, but what if it's a genetic predisposition to having a brisk inflammatory response? Then I would want to make sure he wasn't on a, a, an inflammatory diet or he didn't have exposures to things in his home molds and all sorts of things, the kinds of things naturopaths deal with. So I tend to that first. And I mean, let's say let's take even your area, like stroke, like initially we think of it as either a bleed or a clot. And we think of it as a mechanical interference with the blood supply of the brain. Okay. Well, that may be the immediate event, but what's giving rise to this tendency? And that's more of a holistic problem usually, right? There are all sorts of theories now about why we have clotting problems and inflammatory problems and what causes atherosclerosis and so on. And they're complicated and they're more systemic. And some of them are dietary and, and, and exercises can, can protect against some of these things and so on, and can protect against diabetes and weight gain and all these predisposing factors. Okay, so there's those general things. Now, the next thing. I attended to the next stage is neurostimulation. And 
many of the interventions I describe involve putting energy or through activity into a certain area of the brain. Because one of the things I learned, especially from Edward Taub, who studied stroke, was that let's say a person has a stroke. We've known for 120 years that basically, even if they have a stroke, a bleed in a small area of the brain or a clot, there's a lot of activity in the brain immediately after to deal with the blood, to deal with the clot. There is just like a chemical chaos and a period of time when they're functioning, even if it was in a small area of the brain, is globally much worse. And we call that crisis diakisis. And what we would do is we would wait, and it could be six weeks, I mean, it varies, and for that to pass. And then we would see what was left. That's what a lot of stroke treatment was up till quite recently. I don't know where it is now in your hospital, but it was, and you would tell the patients, look, I, I've heard one of three things. You'll, you'll make some progress over the next year and that'll be pretty much it. Some people occasionally said two years, some people said six months. But the general theme was at the end of a year, uh, that's about as good as you're going to get. And reimbursements for rehabilitation were often for six or eight weeks. I mean, it was all based on this idea that the cells are dead and there's nothing you can do about it. So rehabilitation wasn't finding new cells to take over from dead cells. It was rather kind of waiting until the diakisis passes and then priming the pump to, to get the movements back. So anyway, Taub was originally a lab scientist, but one of the things he discovered originally working with animals was you could cause a neurological lesion and the, the monkey wouldn't be able to use its right arm for about six weeks. And it would try many times in that diakisis crisis to use it. And then he was a behaviorist. And then it learned it couldn't use it. And it was like the brain went into shutdown. So what he, he did, ingenious experiments. In general, if the monkey would be hungry, so it would feed itself with its good arm and its bad arm or hand would just be dormant because it's a use it or lose it brain. And we have really hundreds of experiments showing it's use it or lose it. If you don't use a brain area, it'll be taken over by another activity that you are doing. So what he did is he would put the, the monkey's good arm in a cast so it couldn't use it. And then incrementally train this poor desperate creature to feed itself and found that he could. And so he said, what happened? The reason it's what looked like a complete loss was actually what he called learned non-use. And then he did other weird experiments. Think about this one. He, he created the same lesion in the arm. And instead of putting the good arm in the cast, he put the lesioned arm in the cast. So it couldn't try to feed itself. And discover it couldn't feed itself in diakisis. And then after six weeks, he took off the cast. And with very, very little training, the monkey was able to learn how to feed itself. And his explanation there was it never was able to learn 
that it couldn't use its arm, so didn't. Now, I know this sounds magical, but this is a real thing. It's not as though after a Taub treatment, you get perfect function, but you can often get your life back. And, you know, I've spent a long time in and out of that lab, watching, meeting the patients, watching them work. And then Taub started to realize, and I, in my work, started to realize that learned non-use was relevant in some degree for Parkinson's and many other neurological disorders. And he and I were both then reflecting, well, what's going on here? And he basically thought it was all explained by behavior. And I'm, I was inclined to say behavior plus probably something which is very adaptive, which is, you know, the brain is a huge energy hog. It's like 2% of our weight and 20% of our energy uh, use. And if something's not working, there's very good reason just to, you know, if no one's going down to the office in COVID, it's probably not a good idea to keep all the heating and lights on at full blast. So the brain basically has a biological tendency, and as I believe many animals do all through the animal kingdom, that if something's not being used for energy conservation to have circuitry go dormant. So I realized, again, this is exposure to many different kinds of conditions, that there were patterns that were trans disease or trans disorder. And one of them was dormancy. And so the first stage is neurostimulation. The second stage is neuromodulation. And we'll get into that in a bit more. But basically, our nerve cells are sensitive and excitable and actually irritable so that if you shine a light on an animal, you know, it might turn towards it or wake up. It's stimulated and responds. But it can also over-respond. If you're watching television, your eye is responding to 15 lux of light or something like that, very low. And then if you go out um, on Miami Beach in the summer, it's like way, you know, more than a thousand times that. So we're always modulating our excitability. And what I realized, again, by studying many different cases and kinds of things, is very frequently when a person has some kind of brain disease or injury, and this is very relevant to Ron Hussman, their whole ability to modulate the optimal level of responding is off. They're poorly modulated. And the brain's autonomous methods of modulating and returning to homeostasis, returning to a balanced state of excitement that's optional for functioning, is compromised. And so many, many people with brain problems, almost everybody that I've seen with traumatic brain injury at some point, and often for life, just experiences lights as too bright and sounds as unbearable. And the sound of a metal fork on a plate can drive them over the end. They're, They're hypersensitive to all sorts of sensory input. It's like massively dysregulated. So the second thing is, can we modulate, help the brain modulate itself, restore it. The next thing is I found, this will be very quick, that when a brain is properly modulated, the person goes into a deeply relaxed state. They can sometimes sleep like 12 hours a day, three or four days. And then the final thing is once they're 
modulated and relaxed, then you can teach them to make differentiations, either ones that they made in the past that they can't, can no longer make or new ones like with a kid with a learning disorder. So, and the interventions each parallel the states. So what happened with Ron Hussman is he not only had lost his voice, he had a spasmodic dysphonia, uh, could barely speak. I mean, this was a guy who could sing in an auditorium without a mic and dance. He could barely move. He had balance problems as many people with MS do. He had urinary incontinence issues and so on. Anyway, he puts this thing on and it was invented in Paul Bachirita's lab, but you know, pioneered by uh, Yuri Danilov and Mitch Tyler and Kurt Kazmarek, I think I'm pronouncing his name properly, who were his students after Paul had passed away. And they got him to hum. And within two sessions, this guy who hadn't been able to knit any words together was speaking and singing a little bit. And I think in the third or fourth session, Yuri pointed to his cane and said, you won't be needing this anymore. So what was happening here? So, you know, there are many animals and even the human being as an infant who first begin to map the world very intensely with the tongue. And there's something like 15,000 to 50,000 different pathways. And they go, the tongue and the back of the tongue is very, very close to the brainstem, which is the lowest part of the brain, which contains the circuitry for so much modulation in the body. And this system was damaged by the MS. And they'd experimented for years to use the tongue to do two things. One, to give it information, as I said before, as to where you are in space. So that guy who lost his balance, the it was attached to an accelerometer. So it's like, imagine a piece of Wrigley's chewing gum on your tongue with 144 electrodes on the bottom that are just firing little champagne bubbles. You lean forward and the bubbles roll forward. And that tells you, oh, you're moving forward. You lean to the side, the bubbles go to the side. So that was giving information. But when they were using this device on people just for balance problems, they noticed that if they also had mood problems or movement problems or other sensory problems, they often got better. And Yuri Danilov realized that the, it was the actual input of stimulation that was kind of rebooting the master centers of regulation in the brainstem. Now, here's what I mean. The little signals, that those little electrical stimulations are very, very mild. They can be turned up to be unpleasant, but it's almost like you feel something a little popping on your tongue or dancing on your tongue. And it goes down 300 microns, that's all. And it's enough to stimulate the many, many nerve endings in the tongue for taste, touch, and so on. And that goes by the by cranial nerves into the brainstem. So these are nerves that sort of run through your head back to the lowest part of your brain. And what his theory was, well, it's clearly a case of neurostimulation, that's for sure. But the way he felt it, the neurostimulation led to neuromodulation, and interrupt me if this isn't clear, is 
he believed, as do I, is that we have a number of innate homeostatic balancing mechanisms in our nervous system um, for even the smallest kinds of circuitry. So all of the sensory and motor nerves have these homeostatic correcting mechanisms that correctly balance excitation and inhibition. And so what was happening in Ron's brain is he had a noisy brain, areas were dormant, and areas were understimulated. Let, let me just say a word about how most people have viewed brain problems and how I view them differently based on all of this work. You know, let's take a stroke. I'm talking about how it was certainly taught to me as a medical student and is often talked, uh, often talked about to people in a shorthand. And it goes something like this, that when there's, let's say, a stroke, that'd be a great example as if it's a one-time event. Some cells die and you're, you're left with, there's a deficit in the brain. And what you're left with is the functioning of the living cells. But putting lots of data together, I believe it goes something like this. Some cells die. So some cells connected to the, the dead cells are no longer getting input of signals. And signals, remember, are both excitatory and inhibitory. So cells downstream from the dead cells may be disinhibited or they may be lacking in stimulation. Other cells may not be quite dead from the stroke, but they may have been injured by the stroke. They're alive, but the networks aren't functioning properly and they fire noisy signals. I'll tell you why I think this in a second. Other cells receive the noisy signals. And so they don't function well. And so what you see is a gradation or a spectrum of problems from cell death to noisy cells to cells that are healthy but getting inappropriate signals. And that's what I call the noisy brain. And that's very frequently what's happening. It's not a digital interpretation of it. It's more analogical. And in a way, the dead cells, if you follow my metaphor of the musical score. In a way, the dead cells are the least of our problems. It's the noisy cells are, are deeply problematic because they're giving out junk data to other cells. And they can't be shut up because the homeostatic mechanisms are not working properly. So Ron gets all of this stimulation. It's going directly into the master neuromodulation control of the brain. And there are five or six parts of the brain that that are neuromodulating. Um, and this is Yuri's idea, but fundamentally, when they would scan people who use the PONS, the portable neuromodulation stimulator, they would find that the entire brain would light up, even if they were just stimulating balance. And of course, there's very few degrees of separation, but the mood centers would light up. The movement centers would light up. And of course, the sensory centers would light up. And so, and this is where he's bringing this more holistic approach. So it's actually stimulating the whole functional network. 
So two things are happening. The whole functional network is having its homeostasis reset. And basically the noisy cells are being quieted or reintegrated into proper wave firing. Some of the dormant cells are being stimulated. And while you have the pawns in your mouth, you would do different activities depending on where your deficits were. So if you had a, a balance problem, which Ron did, part of the time spent, and it was 22 minutes each session, would be sent on what's called a balance ball, but it's not really a full ball. It's sort of like just a, a wobbly surface. And he would, he would try to do it on that wobbly surface, challenging his balance system to stimulate the balance circuit to start firing while the homeostatic stuff's being corrected. And if he had, he had problems with his vocal cords, so he would, another time he would just be standing there in a meditative state, but doing some humming to engage those and so on. And what they found again is people who came in whose, let's say, target symptom was falling. There was a woman named Jerry Lake would do the balance exercises while she was using the pawns, but then she found uh, she had a very pretty bad TBI and she lost the ability to recognize and distinguish faces. I mean, even her own granddaughter's face would find that suddenly her visual processing started to improve. So that speaks to a large network. So now I've described, I mean, we're thinking about this case. There may have been a problem with general cellular health that gave rise to the MS. We're doing some neurostimulation of getting Ron to hum. Um, we're doing very general neuromodulation. I can't remember if he was had the, went through that neurolaxation phase where he just slept a lot or not. And you're doing some neurodifferentiation because they would gradually get him to do different notes and to get a singing voice back. So in that case, all the stages of neuroplastic stages of healing were addressed. Again, one thing I didn't say to you, but it's, I think you probably know this from medical history. It was assumed that the brain, the brain, the reason the, the book is called the brain's way of healing is it was assumed that the brain doesn't heal. It was assumed that the brain in the course of becoming this magnificent, highly differentiated object was sort of just too sophisticated for its own good. And it didn't heal the, the way others could. And it's true. It doesn't heal the way other organs do. But what I try to show here is it does have healing options and they just have to be approached very differently than from other organs with the exception of that first stage. And again, to say that the brain can heal, we say, for instance, after a cut or a burn, the, the skin can heal. But it's not to say it can always heal. I mean, there's some amazingly horrendous third degree burns. But I'm saying in certain cases, yes, the brain can heal. And not always, but it's important for clinicians to know that and begin asking that question, which goes to your, your original perhaps question. Well, what are the limits of plasticity? Yeah, it seems very different, but it also seems very similar. I mean, you, you go to the gym and you work out a muscle group or muscle, particular muscle and it becomes bigger. In the same way, 
you know, I think about uh, some recent literature that came out on stroke patients with aphasia. And as you said, you know, for the most part, we say the improvement really happens over the course of a year. And after that, you know, smaller chance for improvement. But it was very clear that when, you know, a couple of years out, patients were doing sort of intensive, intensive speech therapy, their aphasia significantly improved. And so it, while it's different from kind of the rest of the body, in many ways, it, what you're describing sounds very similar, which is that you work on something, you establish those connections or renew or find new connections. Uh, and it, it builds up in the same way that a, that a muscle does. I mean, I'm, I'm perhaps oversimplifying it, but. Well, I, I think you're, I think it is a return. I, I mean, I, I think one of the things I think that happened, and this is, I emphasize more in my first book is we had a m- model of the brain as a machine. It go, I mean, Descartes first describes the, the functioning of the nervous system as a hydraulic machine. This famous story of a boy with his foot in front of a fire and the nerves are vessels. And he describes currents going up the vessels to the brain and then kind of bouncing back down and causing him to withdraw his foot. At the time, some of the neatest machines around were these hydraulic machines in France where people would where there were these statues that were could move their limbs because water was moved through them with pressure. And from that, the idea of currents in the brain, we, we took that idea. We still have it. And then when people were very impressed with electrical, simple electrical machines of the simplest kinds, and which, by the way, we learned about electricity from the bodies of animals like frogs and sparks and things like that, uh, they started to speak of neural circuits. I use that term, but it's a metaphor. And then when computers came along, we started to think of them as computers with hardware and software and the tendency. And it's it's a, a mental laziness that we all participate in is to say, well, thoughts are obviously closer to software than hardware. And then, you know, the brain tissue is the hardware. Now, mis- machines do many glorious things, but they don't grow new parts when parts are damaged. They don't reorganize themselves. Maybe there will be machines that do that. But the use of that metaphor, I mean, in my training, many people often to show their, how scientific they were, would just describe people as machines and particularly brains or brain functions, particularly of animals following Descartes, who thought they were only machines. And so they're, yes, they don't grow the way others do, but we did discover you know, about 25 years ago that there are neuronal stem cells in the hippocampus and there are some, there are some stem cells as well in a cavern within the brain called the fourth ventricle, which is very close to the brain stem. And so it can form some new cells. And of course, in some ways it's constantly forming and unforming new connections. So it does mean abandoning this contraption machine-like metaphor for the brain, which makes many people feel when they speak that way, they're speaking the language of physics and they're, they're showing that they're tough guys because there is a thing within modern science based on the materialist prejudice. I learned this from Carl Pribram, 
a great neuroscientist and neurosurgeon. Someone does philosophy, he says, but I, you know, I really wish that I had something harder like social science. And then the social scientist says, yeah, I love doing social science, but is it really as scientific as biology? And the biologist says, yeah, but I really wish I had something like the chemists have with the periodic table, you know, and so on and so forth. And the and then the chemists say, yeah, you think I'm a scientist, but honestly, this is over a beer. I really wish I was a physicist. And then the physicist says, man, I really wish I had, I, I wish I had the solidity of the mathematician. And then the mathematician says, well, I wish I was a philosopher. Do you know, like we all want to deal with this question of uncertainty by imagining that there is an, a, a sounder epistemological mode of inquiry upon which we can stand our ground and rest our foundation. And it exists within medicine. I mean, there are sort of prejudices about, you know, what's real medicine, what isn't. And of course, yay, I'm a psychiatrist. I'm the least real, I'm the, you know, clearly a pretender. I'm not a real doctor. And then maybe a family doctor is more real than me. And ultimately, you know, it's a brain surgeon who's working. And if the brain surgeon says, yeah, and I'm working on the machine, they seem more grounded, masculine, serious, real. And they, they're cutting. And that's a good thing too, because they're making things into smaller and smaller parts. So that whole prejudice or, or bias, or I just say childlike game, because all of these all of these disciplines have something to offer in one way or another. Epistemology envy, I don't know what you want to call it, it, it can, caused a, has caused a lot of problems in how we, <laughs> how, how we, how we view the brain. I'm, I'm laughing because I had a patient who once said, you know, people would often say, to try to des- describe a serious discipline, they would say something like, you know, it's, it's not brain surgery. Or they would say, you know, it's not right. rocket science. Yeah. And then my patient used to say, you know, it's not rocket surgery. Um, <laughs> and, but the, you know, this caused us to miss out on the, you know, really the the organismic biological nature of the brain. And I would throw in, since it's not simply the case that the mind is a burp of the brain, as some people think, or an after effect, it's in many respects, the driving force of the brain. If there is a driving force in it, I think the mind would be a, a candidate worth considering. And once we see that your mental activity can help shape the brain, that seems to me a pretty strong case. Yeah. Let's maybe shift gears to talk about music. You, you brought it up earlier. And I was particularly fascinated by your chapter on music in the book where you describe music as an invisible art that reaches places in the heart and mind that nothing else can touch, as a mysterious medicine in a culture that favors the visual over the acoustic, and where seeing is believing. What role does music play in treating disease or improving neuroplasticity? How should we think about music in in the context of uh, neurology or in the context of medicine? Well, I guess just riffing off that part you've just begun with, you know, there's a tendency in the modern world, for starters, which may be something that's sort of a spur to your question, to see music as a kind of 
relish or condiment to life. It's a kind of a minor thing. It's a leisure activity. And, you know, that's pretty much all that there is to it. But, you know, in the ancient world, and I'm here, I mean, the ancient Greeks, you know, music was actually, and in in many other cultures was seen as, as a healing art. It was certainly seen as, I mean, Plato writes about the role of martial music to get people worked up in battle. I mean, how worked up? Like willing to sacrifice their lives worked up. Like that's pretty powerful. And the sadness that music can articulate will even reach the icy souls of people who have great trouble expressing emotion. Um, And but somehow or other, because we can't see it or grasp it so easily, we, we again categorize it as ethereal. And yet, um, I mean, early in our lives, we reach out to our mothers through the music of the voice and she to us. And children can hear the voice of the mother in the womb. And we know this from studies, they're now decades old that showed the second a child is born, it can distinguish the voice of the mother from the voice of the mother's sister or somebody else, and it's drawn to that voice. So in a certain sense, we reach the soul of, as maybe I would be reaching the soul of a couple of your listeners, through the voice. Yeah, uh, maybe, well, this is this is a uh, an audio podcast, so emphatically yes it's very very powerful in terms of conveying things and we know from lots of studies now and the work of levitin and so on and so forth and others that music lights up let's go back to what i was talking about about these whole functional networks music just doesn't just light up the auditory cortex if you hear certain beats you can't but tap your feet and you're Movement cortex is highly engaged. You're seeing things. Your 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 whole emotional brain is incredibly activated. So it's one of these windows through this data port of the ears, which you know has have two components. There's one part that's very good at the parts of human speech. There's other, the other vestibular part that's picking up on vibration and it has an incredible active ability to activate us and we know how to modify music now um, to reach people. And you can start thinking about various disorders, particularly neurological ones, with the challenges that are created um, in drinking in the world of sound and how disruptive it is and so on. Now, I've seen musical therapy from you know which developed by alfred tometis and followed patients now for years i'm not interested in something that works once in a blue moon um but in general it's it's been hard until recently to get people willing to take music and these energy-based things seriously and study them but from what i have seen and this is a lot of patients and the basic science that's been done at various labs this is a very, very important intervention, and I've seen it work for certain kinds of ADD, certain things on the autistic spectrum, as I've said, uh, traumatic brain injury, certain kinds of even disorganization of left and right, because you know you can funnel music in 
mostly to the right hemisphere or mostly to the left hemisphere. So there's all sorts of ways of modifying it. I've seen it work to help people who have an incredible amount of exhaustion and lassitude regain a certain amount of energy. So, and in general, it's done with modified music. And Tomatis tried many different kinds of music. He was the guy who had the most insights about this. He's the great giant of the field. I know no one who comes close to him in terms of clinical contributions. Um, I myself, and uh, I mean, his story is just very interesting as to how he got here. He was, his father was an opera singer. Um, he himself was born prematurely, which is probably important in this story, very premature. And in the second world war, he was involved in the resistance. He became a physician. Jean-Paul Sartre was one of his teachers at school, by the way, briefly. And he became an otolaryngologist or an ENT doctor. But so he had a lot of work on ears, nose, and throat. And he became an occupational physician working with, at the French airports, airport workers were going deaf. And so he developed a way of measuring their deafness and found they were deaf in a certain area. Because his father was an opera singer, occasionally he was referred opera singers as patients. And these were people who lost the ability to sing. And the treatment at the time, the, the thought was that their vocal cords were abnormal and they would give them strychnine, which is a poison, tightens in the vocal cords. If you don't know anything about anything, that would seem like an interesting hypothesis. If you can't sing, you've got a problem in your vocal cords. We hear about this all the time, right? And anyway, he decided for some reason to give them the listening test that he had developed. And he found that they were missing the ability to hear in the same frequency as the aircraft workers. And then he calculated how loud an opera singer's singing must be. And so I think a Caravel jet was a hundred, if you were working near it was 130 decibels and he stood close to the opera singers, you know, like a foot or two. And he found they were at 150 on the machine. And then he calculated how loud it must be inside their head. And well, that was interesting. So then he started using musical training to try to re-get them to hear in the frequencies. I, I'm simplifying and skipping a few steps that they had been very defective in. And then he also analyzed Caruso, who was um, deceased at the time, but the greatest opera singer, perhaps, of the 20th century, early part. And he had two periods where he sang. and. One period he was very good, and then in another period he was divine. And he dis, he analyzed the frequencies that he that Caruso was producing, and he basically then got the current opera singers who couldn't hear to listen through a device he invented, where they would sing into it. And he would amplify 
the same frequencies that Caruso was good at and feed it into their ears so they could hear it. And they got better. And then what he realized was their problem wasn't in their vocal cords. They weren't hearing certain frequencies. Now, maybe they just were dormant, those, those pathways. Or maybe they were damaged and needed more stimulation. And so with Tomatis' first law is we sing with our ears. He was, he was just completely taking the field and turning it, well, I guess on its side. And um, the, the next thing he started doing was certain children um, were having difficulty learning languages, and he analyzed the frequencies that are used in each of the languages. And they're all very different. French and, and English, American English is different than British English, etc. And so he taught, he helped French children learn how to learn British English by setting up this, what he called electronic ear that would emphasize the frequencies that they as native French speakers never heard in speech. And they were able to learn to speak English more easily. And they did better in their other subjects in French, weirdly enough. Then people started to say, well, can you help learning disordered kids? And then, then it really, really went from being utterly fascinating to being clinically so helpful. And he was able to help lots of kids with learning disorders. And I described those in detail in, in the brain with healing. And often these were people who had problems listening and speaking, but also even with coordination. And it turns out to be way more complicated and some kids with autism. And I've described a couple of cases of autism in detail. One where the kid completely falls off the spectrum and another one where this, everyone was certain this child would be institutionalized for life. And now he's capable of holding a job and many other things. And so in each case, music is modified in a very sophisticated way to address that person's needs. Let me just give you one simple example. So many kids with autism, most kids with autism, in fact, have sound sensitivities. They're often covering their ears. And severe autism is damaged to both the right and left hemispheres. And they have all sorts of self-stimulating activities. They're often inconsolable, hard to reach. They can't um, often relate to other people. They're in such grave distress. But one of the things that very remarkable is how sound sensitive they are. And the kind of thing that just drives them crazy would be like um, a noisy escalator or those noisy flattened escalators. They're not escalators, flattened moving uh, pathways at airports. That And of one of the most important neuroscience researchers alive today, Stephen Porges, is one of the people who figured out why this is happening. So in, in deep evolutionary terms. So each species finds a frequency in which to communicate. I'm going to use the technical term to con specifics, members of its own species that ideally are hard for its predators to hear. And it becomes hard, pretty hardwired are almost hardwired 
into the sounds the predators make such that they'll get very anxious about that. And we have within our ears something called the acoustic reflex that most people don't know about. But what that thing does is it can dampen down certain frequencies or volumes and enhance other frequencies. So why doesn't every opera singer go deaf immediately? Well, their acoustic reflex blocks them from hearing the sound of their own voice at full volume. And normally human beings like to be listening to the frequencies of human speech, which in relative terms, I'll say are fairly high compared to the predators. And the way that happens is there are these muscles in the ear that can either, and they work together to enhance the ability to hear the high frequencies and dampen down the low frequencies. And many children with developmental disabilities have problems with those muscles. They have low tonus, low muscle tone there, often low muscle tone throughout their body. Or many people who had chronic ear infections and were constantly being given antibiotics, which never really solved the problem, have damage to that. So one of the things Tomatis was able to do was to re-teach the person to engage that acoustic reflex. And it's very, very dramatic when you, you, and you suddenly see the kids are not on high alert. They're on high alert because they're just hearing these low threatening dinosaur lizard frequencies, you know, or predator, predatory frequencies, just the, the very frequencies that, you know, in a, in a movie, when you want to, in, in the wild, when you want to get people frightened or, or even in a haunted house movie, those low pounding frequencies that get your heart beating. Something like that is the experience of many autistic kids and they don't even know it. So they train that reflex and that alone can be help them to re-engage. And I write, write examples of that happening. And But the sound intervention is can do many, many other things other than that. But that's certainly one of them. This is the end of part one of my conversation with Dr. Norman Deutsch. We will pick up next week. This podcast has been produced by the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, D.C. Visit eppc.org to learn more about our programs, events, and podcasts.